You may have heard this story about the man who was stranded on a desert island. Lots of places we can go here. But like the typical desert island stories, this man got acclimated to his new environment in true Tom Hanks castaway fashion. He got used to making fires. He got used to finding food. He even was able to build pretty quality and sturdy shelter. Now, like any good person who is stranded on a desert island, he, every day he is on the look for ships who may be passing. Now, he's been there a long time, but he's still faithful to do this every day. And one day, he actually spots one. So like he would do, he starts building the biggest fire he possibly can that produces the most smoke. And luckily and providentially enough, he, the ship spots him. And they make their way toward the island. And once the ship gets close enough, there's an envoy that's deployed to the island, and the man is overjoyed. He is found. Now, the rescuers, as soon as they come ashore, they make acquaintance with this survivor, and eventually they ask him what they're, the question they're most curious about. How did you survive? How did you survive this long? And so the survivor explains his very intricate system of finding food and how he was able to make shelter. And then he looks at the ridge on the island. He points them, see, if you look there, you can see my house that I built. And so the, the people who came in, they looked up to the ridge and they saw a house. And, and the survivor says, oh, when you look there too, you could see where I go to church. The building's right there. And well, then the people who came onto the island, they say, oh, we see a third hut up there, too. What's that third hut? And the survivor says, oh, we don't talk about that third hut. So you see, the third hut is where I used to go to church. <laughs> Many Christians have said, and I'm sure you felt the same way at certain points, I would love church if it wasn't for the people. But like we need to remind ourselves, the church is a people. It's not a building. It's not an event. The problem is that when you bring people together, yes, even Christians, conflict is bound to happen. Yes, even when it's a church of one person on a desert island. Christians, though we are made new by the Spirit of God, though we are called to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and how we live together with one another, Christians still have the capacity to sin. Christians still feel that tug of self-centeredness, and when they allow that tug to hold sway over them, conflict descends on the church. This was the state of affairs at the church in the ancient city of Corinth. Although these Christians called on the name of the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior, although they were talented and gifted, although they were surrounded by educated individuals, this church was marked by fighting and divisions. This is the first of several issues that the Apostle Paul addressed in his letter to the Corinthians, and he continues addressing it in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, which is where we are today. He redirects their path. He reorients their hearts. And so if you haven't looked there yet, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. You'll find it printed in your bulletin. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, 
for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not behaving merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And this is God's word. This passage is part of Paul's sustained arguments against the Corinthians' divisions and their infighting and the values that went underneath those divisions, their heart behind it. You may remember that the Corinthian Christians' devotion and delight in the gospel dulled and faded over time, and replacing that was infatuation with the cultural and worldly messages around them. So far, Paul has tried to redirect the Corinthians by reminding them God saved them through the gospel that was weak in the eyes of the world, that God brought to faith people who were weak in the eyes of the world, that God did all this through a preacher who was weak in the eyes of the world, and he caused them to embrace the cross of Christ as God's wisdom, not through the spirit of the world, but through God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This brings us to chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Here's the simple takeaway the Corinthians should have gotten from this section. So you fill it out in your bulletin. When God saves us through Christ, he intends to grow us so that we live and think differently. When God saves us through Christ, he intends to grow us so that we live and think differently differently. Now, if you're just taking inventory, you might think this is really Christianity 101. But my goodness, we'll see today how much we take this truth for granted and how often we forget this truth. So for the Corinthians, the jealousy and the strife among them created factions in their church, and it stemmed from hearts that still operated as our self-serving people that we are on our own. And so what does Paul tell them to do? Well, he wants them to do some R&R. That is, he wants them to repent and to rethink. Those are the main broad ways to apply the two paragraphs of our texts, to repent and to rethink. We'll start with repent, verses 1 to 4. Repenting, if you don't know, just to make clear, means to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. The Corinthians needed to repent because they weren't acting the way they should have been acting. And so Paul's path to get them to this application is to begin in verse 1 with him saying that he had to adjust how he taught them. Can you see that? He had to adjust. He says he had to address them not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So just like last week's passage the opening verse here begins with a, it's a contrast or a clarification. Notice the opening verse in chapter 3, verse 1. It begins with the word, but. So Paul just explained how on our own we do not embrace the cross. 
We're unable to understand it. We're bent away from God and toward ourselves. So the Holy Spirit must open our eyes, open our hearts, make us understand, and give us faith. So now Christians are no longer their natural selves, but now they are spiritual. Being spiritual, according to chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, our passage last week, being spiritual means that the Holy Spirit has filled us so that we believe in Jesus Christ crucified and risen in our place. The Holy Spirit fills us simply so that we have faith in Jesus. That's the backdrop for what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says he could not address them as spiritual people. Rather, he had to address them as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is like a heavy blow from Mike Tyson, right? Right in the face. He's saying that he has to talk to them as if they don't have the Holy Spirit, as if, just we'll put it on the table, he has to talk to them like they're not even Christians. He says he has to treat them like they are still of the flesh. And just to fill that out, what that means a little bit, we can consider Romans 8, verse 7, which says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is how Paul had to talk to them. Why? Well, it's going to become clearer as we move throughout this passage, but we have to say from what comes before this, Paul had to talk to them like this because they functioned like the cross didn't matter. That's what Paul's been stressing this whole time. That's what he's been calling them back to. Focus again, remember, on the cross, not all this other stuff. They no longer boasted in the Lord. They boasted in human wisdom and ability. That's not what a true spiritual person does. That is not a Christian's heart. A Christian clings closely to Christ and to Christ's cross. But Paul, we can notice here too, just in these first couple verses, he softens this heavy blow by calling them brothers, really brothers and sisters. And he says that they are in Christ. There's just a pattern throughout this letter that while Paul confronts sin after sin in the Corinthians, he still regards them as Christians. So for those who liked the Corinthians, they like to label themselves as mature, as wise. Paul calls them infants. So yes, they belong to Jesus, but they were acting like children, like those without the Spirit, like non-Christians. So for that reason, as Paul continues in verse 2, he had to feed them with milk, not with solid food. A little tricky just on the surface as we read through this. What does this mean? Other places in the Bible use this similar phrase. For example, Hebrews 5, the author talks about the elementary truths of God's word and says that those who drink milk are infants and not familiar with the teaching about righteousness. The author of Hebrews says that solid food is for the mature. That might give some clarity about what this means, but not all of it. To know what this means, though, like any passage, we wonder what it means. Just keep in mind what's around it. Keep in mind what Paul's been saying. Paul's been stressing the main message he preaches. He's talked about the main content of his message and how he doesn't compromise on it. If if you have your Bible open, Just remember chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. 
2 verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is no upper echelon of teaching beyond that. There is no greater truth than this. This Jesus Christ and him crucified cannot be relegated as mere milk. So just think of what Paul's emphasis here is is in this passage, in the opening of chapter 3. He emphasizes not the content of what he teaches. He's emphasizing how the Corinthians received the teaching. Like we said from the outset, this whole letter, this passage included, shows that the Corinthians behaved like they shouldn't have been behaving. One commentator summarizes it really well. He says, the Corinthians hankered after the more exquisite charms of clever oratory to tickle their ears. This made the simplicity of the word of the cross seem bland and elementary. If Paul's message looks like milk to them, it discloses that they are not as mature or as spiritual as they think. When I was around eight years old, I ended up in the hospital with dehydration. Now, I don't know all of the causes of it, but I do know when I was eight years old, I didn't really like to drink water. When I was eight years old, when I did decide to drink some kind of liquid, my choice beverages were chocolate milk, Hawaiian punch, and root beer. You see, if you put kids in charge of what they eat and what they drink, they'll leave behind what's good for, what's good for them for what tastes the best. Same thing works here for the Corinthians and for Christians. So Paul, like every pastor should, He acts like a good parent, telling them essentially, guys, I still have to consider, I still have to give you what you consider to be just milk. Just because you are fussy and stubborn and run away from this, I know that you still need it. He cared this way for all of the churches that he founded. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So just a mini application here, Paul giving the Christian, these Christians milk. You should know that this time together that we have each week during the preaching of God's word, this is, this is like a meal. This is feeding time. And pastors should make sure that what they are feeding Christ's people is good for them, is good food, the food that they need. And the food that we need is God's word with Jesus at the center. This is what will truly nourish us spiritually. Jesus says we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. This is the food that we need. And I think further we could say from how Paul deals with the Corinthians, giving, continuing and insisting on giving them the milk of the gospel, is that pastors should be mindful of who they are feeding, of who is listening, of their struggles, their weaknesses, what they're going through. Should be mindful of that some need a lot, some have short attention spans, some can barely stomach a certain truth, others have a certain deficiency in this. Applying the word and feeding the flock carefully. So let's review where we've been so far. Paul had to address the Corinthian Christians 
as if they weren't Christians, as if they were still their natural selves. He had to feed them what they considered to be the basic and bland gospel. Now, in the second half of verse 3 and on into verse 4, he gets into specifics. How did he know that they still needed the so-called milk of the gospel? Well, because there was jealousy and strife among them, which showed up in their divisions over following certain leaders. Paul knew that they were acting of the flesh like their natural selves because jealousy and strife do not come from the spirit, but from the flesh. Jealousy and strife are not products of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They are products of worldly wisdom that bows down to the God of self. Just consider other verses in the Bible that talk about jealousy and strife. For instance, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, which says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, covetousness, close cousin to jealousy, covetousness, it says, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. So that indicates our jealous and covetous cravings. That means wanting what others have and being resentful that they have it and we don't. Those cravings stem from worshiping something else besides God. That's where those cravings come from. And what is it that we worship besides God? where jealousy and strife come from? Well, it's ourselves. It's our own desires. That's what we worship when we indulge into jealousy and strife. Listen to James 4, verses 1 to 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. According to Galatians 5, verse 20, like we read just a few moments ago, jealousy and strife are not fruits from the Spirit. They are fruits of the flesh. This is where the Corinthians were. And that's why Paul still had to labor to feed them what they considered to be the basic and bland gospel, but what they needed in order to grow out of this. So as we wrap up these four verses and Paul's call to repent and take in the gospel again, I want us to notice three assumptions that lie underneath these verses. Paul assumes three truths. And knowing these is going to help us understand these verses, knowing these is going to help us apply these verses. They're really simple, too. We might take these for granted. Assumption number one that goes underneath these first four verses. Christians can still sin. Christians can still sin. Paul assumes that. Christians can still sin. And the people said, duh, duh. Unfortunately, uh, many churches filled with people who carry the name of Jesus have more fighting and more division than local rotary clubs and PTA boards. That Christians still sin is why many outsiders grow disillusioned to Christianity. They've witnessed or been hurt by churches and Christians who claim the loving and morally upright name of Jesus. 
So we might say, of course, to the assumption that Christians can still sin. But friends, don't we forget this? Don't we forget this? We forget it all the time. When we forget that we can still sin, we let our guards down. We think everything's fine. We abandon watchfulness, and then we drift. And we lose our credibility. We lose our witness for the gospel. When we forget that we still sin, we become moralistic and legalistic. We think that Christians should all the time be squeaky clean. And so that makes, when we have that mindset, that makes us then hide the dirty parts of our, of our lives. It makes us shove away the dirty laundry. It makes us hide our sin. It makes us give the appearance that we're doing fine. Meanwhile, our hearts deteriorate and grow cold. We just say, you don't have to do that here. Brother and sister in Christ, you do not have to hide here. I'm not saying you've got to air out your dirty laundry for everybody. And I'm saying you don't have to act like everything is fine. We don't want to, pe- we don't want to be a people who, where everybody is nice, but nobody is real. Don't want that. Remembering that we still sin allows us to remember that our relationship with God is based on grace and grace alone. The Corinthians' jealousy and strife should remind them, should have reminded them just how desperately they needed Jesus in their place. They were a mess, but they were in Christ. Christians have Jesus' perfect life. We have his death that paid the price for what we've done, and we have his resurrection, new life in him. So that's Paul's first assumption, that Christians still sin, which leads to Paul's second assumption underneath these verses. Christians should live differently. Christians should live differently. That's really the whole point, one of the big points of the opening chapters of Corinthians And living differently starts with the self-awareness of assumption number one, that we can still sin. So we should be watchful of our hearts and surroundings and honest when we do sin, having no fear because the sin's already paid for. But Christians should live differently. I wonder, after you've made a mistake or after you have sinned in some kind of way, I, I wonder if afterwards, have you ever said, well, I'm only human. We've all said that, some form or another. I'm only human. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that excuse for Christians does not work anymore? It doesn't. It does not apply to us anymore. We have new life and freedom in Christ. Sin no longer holds us in chains. We have the Spirit of God himself and dwelling in our hearts. We have new desires, new power to walk out of darkness and walk in the light. Do not say, I am only human. You are not of the flesh. You are of the spirits. This is what the Lord calls us to do. He saved us and now calls us and empowers us to walk after him in holiness and in good works. So God gives us the power and desire to live differently so that we can say, not just Christians should live differently, but y'all, we can say Christians can live differently. We can. 
Make no mistake, though, we are active, not passive in this process. We must draw near the Lord. We must seek to follow him faithfully. We must feed on his word. We must pray to him. We must work. But we do this as those who are already saved, as those who are fueled by the Spirit. So assumptions underneath these first four verses, Paul calling them to repent because they were acting like they shouldn't have been acting. Assumption one, Christians can and still do sin. Assumption two, Christians should live differently. And the third assumption underneath this paragraph, Christians should grow. Christians should grow. Look again at the end of verse two and beginning of verse three. Paul says, even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Can you hear that, just that tone of sort of surprising disappointment? Guys, it's been this long and you're still here? Paul came to them as those who were immersed in a culture that was impressed with itself, that cared most about looking out for number one. And as those who believe the gospel, the Corinthians should have grown out of that mindset. They should have matured so that life in the church was no longer about me, but about we. And notice here that growth doesn't just relate to learning more facts about the Bible and about God. That matters. Growth here looks like developing a character and a heart that is more like Christ. Do you know why the Corinthians hadn't grown? This is easy from this passage. You know why they hadn't grown? They were malnourished. They no longer wanted the gospel. They wanted the cotton candy the stuff that sounded good, the stuff that the world around them liked. And the irony is that they fancied themselves as very wise and mature, but that led them to leave behind the gospel, what can truly give them growth, so that they were kept as infants and as foolish and as fleshly. You see, many Christians assume wrongly that all the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified is good for is forgiveness of sin. That's it, we're forgiven, then we move on to other things. That's a wrong assumption. The gospel is now our way of life. Just read the New Testament and how the gospel shapes how we live. It shapes our marriages. It shapes our work. It shapes our lives together as a church. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there is no aspect of life that the gospel has not something to say about. The whole of life must come under its influence because it is all-inclusive. The gospel is meant to control and govern everything in our lives. But they left it behind. So if Paul assumes that Christians grow, and we grow by still feeding on the gospel, I wonder, Christian, have you grown over this last year? How have you grown? Do you know people well enough here among your brothers and sisters at Old Oak who can observe God's work in your heart and in your life and notice areas of growth? Christian, do you want to grow? Not just in your knowledge of facts, but in your character and closeness to God. Have you asked for help in this? Are you helping others in this? Here's a test for your desire to grow. What do you want out of church? 
What do you want out of church? Do you want everything to be easy? For everything to be about you and your needs? To be as comfortable as possible? I'm not saying that all of that is necessarily bad in itself. But there are Christians everywhere in Christ's church who are malnourished and have stunted in their growth because, as one commentator says, all they want are another round of choruses and a simple message, something that won't challenge them to think, to examine their lives, to make choices, and to grow in their knowledge and adoration of the living God. Y'all, let's not settle for that. Let's be aware of the sin that clings so closely. Let's be confident that God enables us to walk differently. And let's press in to grow in knowing and following our Savior and King. So the Corinthians were not behaving as they should have behaved, so Paul calls them to repent. Verses 5 to 9, Paul shows that underneath their behavior, the Corinthians did not think the way they should have thought. So he calls them to rethink. So as we look at the beginning of this next paragraph in verse 5, we see Paul transitioning to another topic. He says, okay, guys, let's talk about these human teachers you love, these human teachers you divide over. Let's talk about who they really are. Let's talk about what they really do. Let's talk about how they relate to God. So in verses 5 and 6, he lays out the proper perspective about human teachers and leaders. 5 and 6, proper perspective. In verses 7 to 9, he draws out conclusions and applications from that proper perspective. Verse 5, Paul tells them the proper perspective of, church, of who church leaders are and who God is. Who church leaders are and who God is. Church leaders, he says, are servants. God is the master. We can hear echoes of Paul's rhetorical questions from chapter 1, verse 13, when he asked, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here in chapter 3, verse 5, he asks, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Just like he's already said to them, Paul tells them again here. He says, guys, you are making us into too big of a deal. Seriously. We work for the Lord, not for ourselves. We work to show how big of a deal he is, not how big of a deal we are. Now, God, it may have used our efforts, but he's the one who brought you to faith, not us. You just think about it. After you hear a musician perform a beautiful piece of music, the performance is done. Afterwards, your attention is not focused on the instrument. Your attention is focused on the musician. Paul and Apollos were instruments, instruments in the Redeemer's hands. They should have this proper perspective. Who church leaders are, who God is. Verse 6, Paul tells them the proper perspective of what church leaders do and what God does. What church leaders do and what God does. He said, Paul planted, Apollos watered. We see how this played out in Acts chapter 18. Paul came to the city of Corinth first and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified to them. And then later, Apollos came afterwards doing the same. So Paul says here, me and Apollos both had roles to play, but at the end of the day, we really couldn't bring the results. Only God could. He uses the farming analogy, so often used in scripture. 
Farmers can work, farmers can water the field, but they do so with seed they did not make. They do so with soil that does not come from them. They do so with water that does not come from them. So Paul says it's not our job to give the growth. It's our job to plant, to water, to pray. So he lays out the proper perspective in verses 5 to 6, and then he draws conclusions and applications in verses 7 to 9. You can see him pivot in verse 7. Verse 7, he, that very first word of the verse is so. All right, this is the truth. So, this is what you should do with it. So, this is how you should now think. In verse 7, he tells them they need to rethink their view of people. In particular, church leaders. They need to rethink who they are, what they do, how they relate to God. He says, people are nothing. God gives the growth. So the problem for the Corinthians is that people had become everything to them. Not nothing. People were everything. People were their badge of loyalty, their badges of honor. They thought that the right leader and teacher would make all the difference. They thought that the right leader and teacher would make them feel better, that they are better than others. They thought that the right leader and teacher would take them to the places that they wanted to go. Instead, Paul says, people are nothing. Only God gives the growth. You know, the Christian life and Christian ministry is so much more freeing, it's so much more effective when we know our job, when we know what we can and cannot do, and we know what God alone is able to do. You know, I've, um, I've interacted with a few people uh, who... Maybe they're visitors of Old Oak or they're outside of Old Oak in general. And they, they get to know me in, uh, some and they learn and they kind of brighten up when they learn that I'm the lead pastor of Old Oak as a younger guy. And they, they say something like, oh, I'm sure a lot of young people and families have started attending because of you. And it, I, I understand this is well-intentioned. I don't want to read into motives. I, I try to be gracious. I, I say, you know that maybe to an extent, not exponential, but some. But underneath a statement like that is maybe a misunderstanding, just a little bit of ignorance. You see, attracting a crowd is not the same as converting a soul. Attracting a crowd is not the same as converting a soul. Maybe since people nowadays are able to manufacture a large crowd is one reason why we have churches that might be filled with people, but they're people who don't really know Christ. You see, no matter how young I am, no matter how insightful I am, no matter how relatable I am, no matter how big of a crowd I can produce, I can't give new life to someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins. I can't do that. All I can do is be faithful to proclaim God's word and God gives the growth. That's it. Only the Spirit working through the gospel of Jesus can do that. So Paul says, rethink your view of people, especially those in ministry. The apostle Paul said that. If anybody had reason for confidence, it was him. The guy who practically wrote the New Testament. So yeah, Paul worked. Paul had a role. He says here that he planted. 
So let's be careful. Let's not hide behind the reality that we can't give growth to validate our laziness, to validate our lack of evangelism, to validate our lack of boldness and love. It should spur us on to all those things. In other places, Paul writes that he toils with all the energy God gives him to proclaim Jesus and present his people mature. Can we really say we do the same? Toil with all our energy. So Paul works hard. He has a role. At the same time, he says, if God did not give the growth, he would have worked for nothing. That we can't give growth and only God can should remind us to do well what God has called us to do. Do all that we can to plant the seed of the gospel, to water it, to work hard, to be thoughtful. That we can't give growth and only God can should remind us to give ourselves more to prayer than we do to marketing and strategizing. Because God alone can only do this work. That we can't give growth and only God can should remind us, friends, to be patient. To be patient. Paul charged his young protege, Timothy, very famously. He said, preach the word. But what comes after it is not as famous. He tells Timothy, preach the word with all patience. With patience. I don't know about you. Think about all of the meals from the time you were born, an infant, out of your mom's womb, until you were around maybe 16. Can you remember every single one of those meals? Of course you can't. Maybe you can remember some of them. It's, it's the same way here. You still ate and you grew. God works often the same way. The most meaningful and genuine growth that God gives, whether it's faith in Christ or growth in Christ, normally happens over time. So let's just get specific about this. Parents, the people here, thank you, who lead children's church. When you read your kids the word or you talk to them about Jesus and it seems like it goes in one ear and out the other, don't give up. Keep planting. Keep sowing the seed of the gospel, knowing that God gives the growth. Listen, when we come to church week in and week out and nothing seems to be different, keep going. Do not grow weary in doing good. Lean in. God gives the growth. He may be producing a harvest that's underground that we can't see. When you hesitate to share the gospel again with a family member or friend who has heard it many times, have faith. God gives growth. When you stumble over your words and speaking about what you believe with someone you don't know that well and you don't really seal the deal, so to speak, believe that God uses imperfect efforts and that he gives growth. I know someone who counted that 17 different people, 17 different people shared the gospel with him before he believed. Be somebody in that chain. With God's help, be faithful and trust that while we can't give growth, he does. So verse 7, Paul's shifting, telling them to rethink. He says, rethink your view of people. Verse 8, he tells them, rethink the goal. Rethink the goal. That is what they are striving for. 
The goal is faithfulness, not fruitfulness. To do our job well, not to get all the results that we can to make us look as best as possible. So let's just caveat this a little bit. Of course, we desire the results of people coming to know Christ, of having their characters grow into more like his. Of course we desire that. What we're saying here is we simply can't control that outcome. When we think we can, when we think we can control fruitfulness, we can slip into a competitive mindset, a mindset into kind of showing off of how effectively we minister and teach and preach. So the goal is not to make yourself look more impressive than other Christians. Instead of that, Paul says, he who plants and he who waters are one. We're on the same team. The goal is to labor for the gospel, making it known to those who don't know it, helping those who believe it to live it out. So the Corinthians' divisions reflected that they weren't working toward that goal. They were working toward some different goal. Because if that was their goal, then they would have worked together, not competing against one another. Now, I think we might read this verse, you know, he who plants, he who waters are one, and probably our minds most naturally go to our attitudes toward other gospel-proclaiming churches. That's where my mind naturally drifts toward in light of this. And we should. That's a, a good way to apply it. But I think, too, this can exist. This kind of sense of competition can exist between individuals in the same church. Seriously, it can. I, I, just, I remember my time at Third Avenue Baptist in Louisville uh, when I was in seminary. And at their Sunday evening service, it would be a, a longer time of prayer like we try to do here. Uh, and the main requests that would come were for people who didn't know the Lord, but who uh, a particular member of Third Avenue shared the gospel with them recently. Say, hey guys, I shared the gospel with this person this week. Would you pray that God gives fruit to what I said? And I remember there were probably, there was probably a group of three to five people who would have that kind of request every single week. Every single week. And I would sit back and listen, and I'd think, man, I wish I was like that. They are, I'm a seminary student. I don't have requests like that. You see, that mindset makes it about me versus them. And instead, what was going on there at that church was such a sweet, cooperative spirit. Because what was often the case is that person who made a request for that, another person to come to know the Lord, they had other members around them at the church who were walking alongside them trying to befriend that person and care for them and speak into their lives. They weren't doing it as individuals. They were doing it together as members of the church. And then they were coming to the rest of the church and asking all of us to pray. This is not everybody's on their own scattered into the world. It's all on you for the Great Commission. This was us together living out in the world. Not a competition, but a cooperation. So the point is here to remember that we are working toward the same goal together and doing our best with God's help to be faithful to that goal. And here Paul says just to rethink it. Rethink this goal. We strive to make the gospel known to a starving, dying world of which we used to belong. We can use all the hands for the harvest that we can get. So, 
real practically, invite others in to pray and even befriend those for whom you have a heart to know Christ. Tell, tell your fellow members here at Old Oak, like, hey, I, I, have, I have a big heart for my brother, my sister, my, my mom, my dad, my coworker. I've tried sharing the gospel with them a few times. But I just feel like I've stumbled over my words. Do you have any advice? Could you pray that God would save this individual? Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual. Maybe I, I might I think about having God would save this individual.